You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned after it for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. For the last few months, we've been looking at the story of the Bible and seeing how that story swallows up the power of death. And to bring our series to a close, I'll begin like this. I want to tell you a tale today of three different gardens and the part that they play in the story of God, in the story of us, to grasp the big picture, this tale is a must. Let's begin the, the tale of three gardens and the place where God makes and he places the first people in the book of Genesis. Out of all the places that he could have put us, out of all the places he could have made us and then placed us, God places us where? He, he doesn't make us and place us uh, on a mountain or, or in a lake or in a forest or even on a beach. No, the writer of Genesis tells us this. It says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So why were we placed in a garden? Well, on on one hand, if you know anything about ancient Mesopotamian, Babylonian, Sumerian creation myths, and who doesn't, let's just admit You know, there's always some kind of garden involved. So on one hand, as much as Genesis is a kind of history, it's also a highly sophisticated critique of those other stories. Because in this garden, God himself comes, God himself touches the dirt, God himself plants this garden, God makes people personally on purpose, in love. The one true God we're shown is not remote. He's not distant. He's not disinterested. He's not competing with lower life forms or other deities. So on one hand, the original reader would know instantly that this garden, this story is different because God isn't just in the story. God's in the garden. But there's more than just critique going on here as well. Let's ask, why did God make this first garden in the first place? The next verse tells us why. It says, the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground. Trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. So why did God make the first garden? Well, you'll notice before it ever talks about food, before it mentions a purpose for the garden, before it mentions anything that the garden or the trees or the plants are useful for, it just says this, that the garden, the trees were pleasing to the eye. Robert Alter, the great Bible translator, puts that phrase like this. He says, the trees were lovely to look at. Why was the garden there? Oh, just because it was lovely to look at. See, this is showing us that as much as maybe even sometimes before we need food, the human heart, the human soul, it needs beauty. It needs something lovely just to look at. This is showing us, this first garden shows us we were made to experience beauty, made to look at it, to gaze upon it. An experience of beauty, this is showing us, is supposed to do something to the human soul we were made for beauty. 
There's a famous story about that great uh, famous cathedral in Paris, the one whom, for whom much of the world's in mourning right now. Of course, it's Notre Dame, the great cathedral. And in the 19th century, on Christmas Day, 1886, a famous French poet and avowed atheist, a man by the name of Paul Claudel, went to a church service there. He was arm-twisted to go to church that day, maybe, just maybe like some of you were arm-twisted to come to this church today. You say, well, Morgan, you wouldn't have had to arm-twist me much to get me to go to Paris <laughs> or to Notre Dame with you, and hey, I hear you, me neither. And while I will readily admit that we are not, as you can see, in an 800-year-old Gothic cathedral today, we do have lots in common with Notre Dame, sort of an aside here, including Not enough parking some days. I mean, have you ever tried to park at Notre Dame? For those of you who have been, it's not going to happen. And second, actually, we too have had a fire in our building. True story. So I know it's almost like being there today right here, isn't it? Yeah. But in all seriousness, God speed to them as they rebuild. Amen. But Paul Cladell, Christmas Day. 1886, he walks in an Notre Dame and he, and he sees the beauty of the cathedral. He hears, he experiences the beauty of the Gregorian chant from the choir as they sing the beauty of the story of the birth of Jesus of Nazareth and Paul Claudel, the atheist. He said this, quote, in an instant, my heart was touched and I believed. In an instant, my heart was touched and I believed. And Paul Claudel remained a committed and influential Christian for the rest of his life. See, an experience of beauty can convert the heart and the mind. We were made for beauty. What else does beauty do? Maybe like you, uh, I enjoy all kinds of music. I'm a music guy. I enjoy all kinds of stuff. I like jazz. I love rock. I love electronic. Yeah. I love some old school soul, maybe a smidge of country. I do live in Texas after all. I love gospel music and maybe like some of you, I love classical music, probably due to my childhood piano lessons. And actually later on in college, I took a course on listening to classical music. Thank you very much, liberal arts education. Some of you hard science people are like eye-rolling me right now. Like, man, great. Our state's tax dollars hard at work, right? I mean, classical music. But yeah, I took a course in listening to classical music. So let's summarize. Why did I listen to classical music in college? To get an A. (laughs) To get an A. Why did I want an A? Because I wanted a high GPA. Why did I want a high GPA? Because I wanted a good job when I graduated. So I listened to classical music to make money. Make money. Now, as an adult, by contrast, I've actually purchased Mozart, Beethoven, Chopin. I listened to them not to make money. I spent my own money to get their music in my life. Why? Well, because I know, you know, it's been proven if you play it. At night, while your kids are sleeping, it'll make them smarter. That's why I listen. No, I'm just kidding. That's actually not true. No, I listen to it because it's beautiful, because beauty draws us towards itself for its own sake. We were made for beauty. Beauty converts. It draws us in. What else does beauty do? Elaine Scarry, a Harvard professor, she wrote a little book about these kind of experiences. And her book was called On Beauty and Being Just. And she wrote this quote, beauty stops us, transfixes us, takes the individual away from the center of of preoccupation with self and prompts the redistribution of attention toward others. 
She's saying beauty is so compelling when we experience it. It it can actually make us more just. It pulls us out of ourselves and towards others. See, beauty converts. Beauty draws us in. Beauty makes us more just. This shows us we don't just love beauty as humans. No, we need beauty to be fully human. The first garden shows us what we were made for and why we long for what we long for now. And hear me. Hidden within any beauty you are longing for today is really just the echoes of Eden. The echoes of Eden. When we long for beauty, we're longing for our first home, for the first garden. So yeah, it's great, but why aren't we there now? Why aren't we there now? Why are we here instead? Why do we only get glimpses of the garden through cracks in the world Here's why. Because there wasn't just beauty in that first garden. There was also danger there. In Genesis, we read there was an enemy there, uh, the serpent. It was Satan, our story tells us. There was an enemy in that first garden who whispered a lie. Our first parents believed, and they broke God's heart, and they broke the world. You say, well, how did the enemy get in there? I mean, wasn't there like a gate or something? I mean, couldn't God have put like a snake trap out, you know, to keep it from getting in? Yeah. He could have, but here's the point of the story. God was offering us a choice in the first garden. And a choice is only a choice when a choice is what? A choice, yeah. God was offering us a choice, him or us, ourselves, beauty or self, which when it all came down, we want more. Oh, we could have had him had the beauty, but we chose the lie. And instead of acknowledging that, just like a fish is most free when it swims in the water, like a bird is most free when it soars in the sky, instead of acknowledging that in the same way that the human heart is most free when it soars him, when it swims in the beauty of the heart of God and of his ways and of his will and of the commandments we chose the lie we chose the lie and we broke the worldwide web of beauty and death came in to our story and when they lost that beauty when they lost the garden we lost it i lost it we were desperately trying to get back in now so how can we how can we it's through the strange beauty actually of the second garden Because in the story of the Bible, there isn't just a first garden, there's also a second. A great second garden to undo the lie. A great rescue plan for humanity's cry. What was lost in the first, in the second, is one. What we could not do was done by God's Son. Now, maybe some of you have had a, a gardener in your family. I've had a number of gardeners in my family. I remember my grandmother as an older woman. She had this beautiful flower garden. I remember her uh, bending over, even uh, with arthritis, robbing her strength and, and giving her pain. She would bend over painstakingly to remove what now also grows in gardens. Not just flowers that blossom, but weeds that grow and choke My father, his father were also gardeners. They didn't grow flowers. They grew vegetables of all kinds. I remember being a child and compelled, or shall I say, I was given the opportunity to pull weeds in my father's garden in the heat of a Texas summer with no gloves on because the weeds were too small to pull with gloves, being bitten by fire ants. You get Texas fire ants getting sunburned by the Texas sun on my Texas neck with Texas sweat running down my Texas face, all to pull up the tiniest weeds so they didn't choke the vegetable plants, the beans 
the tomatoes. See, in gardens now, in gardens now, there isn't just a reminder of what we lost. There's also a reminder of what we suffer. We suffer weeds in life, don't we? We suffer toil. We suffer sweat, pain, loss, starvation, cancer, pain, and sometimes even death. The last week of his life, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of a carpenter named Joseph, the great, great, great grandson of a king named David, the great, 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 great grandson of the first gardener named Adam, Jesus Christ, walks into a second garden. In the last week of his life with his friends, with his disciples, and something happens to Jesus as he walks into the second garden, as he walked in. We're told this by the gospel writer, Matthew. He says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Oh, did, you, did you catch that? The son of God says, I feel like I am dying. So profound. What's this? Well, if, if you want to see a bunch of stuffy theologians get all up in their feelings, Wax poetic about a Bible verse. Just go study this one because what they all basically say is that Jesus, beginning right here and up to and through the point on the cross, Jesus began to experience and taste something so wretched it made him sick. What was it? We see it in Jesus' prayer that he prays here in the second garden. Jesus prays this now. He says, oh, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What's this? Well, the cup all throughout the Old Testament is, is a metaphor for God's judgment on evil, on wickedness, on death. And if you're here now and you're saying, oh, no, here comes the judgment bit. I didn't come for that. I don't like a God of wrath. I came for just a God of love. Let me just say this to you. You show me a father who doesn't hate evil and act against it in love in his own child's life. And I'll show you a coward for a father. The biblical God isn't a coward. He's a good father who is going to act against evil in the world. And that is what's happening right here in the second garden now. Jesus is here in the second garden. He's not in Eden, which means pleasure. He's in Gethsemane, which means oil press. The place where life is pressed out, where life is squeezed out. And he is drinking the cup of judgment to get all the beauty back. And so what Adam could not do in the first garden of beauty, Jesus Christ does in the second garden of death. He obeyed God fully about the tree. And he freely chose what Adam, Eve, you and I could not. And he prays this, yet not my will, but yours be done. Yeah, he wrestles, he submits, but he, he submits his heart and he drinks the cup. He goes to the cross and he dies. See, Adam's Eden, this is showing us, Adam's Eden was won back by Christ, Gethsemane. Adam's Eden was won back by Christ, Gethsemane. I'll say it one more time. Adam's Eden was won back for us by Christ, Gethsemane. What does this show us? It shows us now two things I want to quickly make a point of showing you. This shows us, first of all, the second garden shows us actually how real Jesus was, how real Jesus was. This is what it shows us because no writer, I mean, come on, no founder of a faith, no church leader would have ever made this up, never made this up. I mean, come on, the founder of your faith tries to get out of his mission three times. I mean, at least Socrates drank the hemlock fearlessly 
Joan of Arc goes to the, the, the stake. Other martyrs are burned bravely. I mean, but Jesus here, he cowers. He cowers. He can barely bring himself to do what needs to be done. What kind of a leader is that? Including this in a biography of Jesus, it doesn't help you found your faith if you're just making up a story to get yourself in power. The only reason this would ever be included is if it really happened and you wanted to get it right. But second, the second garden shows us not just how real Jesus was, it actually also shows us how cultural we are, how cultural we are, and here's what I mean. Some of you, when you read this story, some of you probably like, we do like this story of Jesus in the second garden, like many people in America and the West do, because we say, finally, oh, Jesus, he feels so accessible here. He's not just a hero who doesn't bleed, right? I mean, Jesus is sweating it here, and we like that, but that's because we like our heroes like we see in Marvel movies. Powerful, oh, but flawed. Maybe they were weak. They bleed a little, you know. But let me tell you, a billion people on the other side of the world today in another faith system, in another culture, they hate what they see here, what they read here in the second garden. They hate the idea of God becoming human precisely because of what they read right here. I mean, sweat, bleed, beg to get out of it. No way. They hate it. At the same moment, we love it. So what are they objecting to if Jesus is really fully God and fully human? What are they objecting to? They object to his humanity, his humanity. They're rejecting Jesus primarily because of a cultural objection. They say a God could never, never, ever be weak, but only powerful, distant, remote, removed. But what do many of us, on the other hand, what do many of us in the West object to, culturally speaking, if Jesus is fully God and fully man? Well, we don't object to his humanity. Oh, no, we like that part. We object to his divinity. We object to his divinity. We object to Jesus' divinity today because that means if he's God, he can do what he wants, and he can even exclude people in some way from himself or his kingdom. And we don't like anybody excluded from anything. Let's just be honest. The problem with that thinking is Jesus excluded people all the time. And Jesus, here it is, actually taught about hell more than any other person or teacher in the Bible. Morgan, that can't be right. Jesus never excluded anybody. Uh, He loved everyone. I mean, Morgan, doesn't it say all the sinners loved Jesus? You hear that all the time, right? Men, the sinners love Jesus. Well, that's kind of true and kind of not true. The Romans were flagrant sinners. Why didn't they love him? Herod and Pilate put him to death. They didn't love him. Uh, The Herodians were another group in that day. They were flagrant sinners. Why didn't they love him? And let's just be honest, the Pharisees were sinners. So why didn't they love Jesus? It's because sinners don't automatically love Jesus. Only the sinner who knows they're a sinner loves Jesus. Only the one who knows they need saving is grateful when a Savior comes to them. Hear me, hell only offends the one who insists he or she is not in need of saving. So yeah, Jesus loves everyone, but not everyone loves Jesus. And if they're there, therefore, if there is nothing to be saved from, if evil isn't real, if there's nothing wrong with the human heart, if there's nothing wrong with you or how anyone's behaved or any leaders somewhere, and there's nothing wrong with people blowing up churches today on this day of all day halfway around the world, if there's nothing at all wrong in the world, no evil at all, then what is Jesus doing here? Come on, if there's nothing wrong with the world, he is in sweating, bleeding, 
choking and dying for nothing. But if you will look at the strange beauty of the second garden and see both the humanity and the divinity of the second gardener, the second Adam, the God-man Jesus, wrestling with and choking on the weeds of sin and death brought by our choice in the first garden. If you can see and believe the gospel right here, which is that you were so bad, Jesus had to die for you. And yet you are so loved by him that he was glad to die for you. Now you can get it all back. See, to get back the beauty of the first garden, we have to take in and taste and believe in the strange beauty of the second And for those of us, friends, those of us who do, and for those of us who will, I want to tell you, there's something now even greater than the first or the second garden, and it's this. For two gardens there are, but still there's one more, both greater and grander than all that's before. The consummation, it's called, where the victory's been won, and all earth and the heavens have now become one. So what is this third? What does this final garden in the tale of three gardens look like? Well, the last living disciple, flash forward, last living disciple of Jesus, a man named John, he's been exiled to the island of Patmos. Oh, Patmos by the Romans. And there, while he's on the island as an old man, he receives a vision of the future. Christians have called it the book of Revelation, a vision of the future where good has overcome evil. And the last thing, the last vision that John has shown of all things, John has shown a vision of a third and final garden. Look at this. It says, I was shown the river of the water of life, as clear, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And down the middle of the great street of the city, there's a new word, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations no longer will there be any curse. Genesis has been undone. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city. His servants will serve him. They'll see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no more night. They won't need the light of a lamp. For, the, for God himself will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. See, there was a first garden of beauty, a second garden of death, and still to come. John says there's a garden that's a city, a city garden, a garden city. It's a, it's a garden, but it's a kind of a city because look, there's a river that runs through it. There's trees, crops, fruit. Why is there this garden? Why is there a garden city in the future for those who love and know and follow Jesus? And that all comes down to this question. What do you think real beauty looks like? What do you think it looks like? Another way of putting it would be for those of us with kids, if you got kids or grandkids today, another way of putting it would would be to ask the question, whose kids do you believe are more beautiful? Yours or someone else's? Listen, as a pastor, I've seen countless babies be born in hospitals. It's actually amazing. But I have never heard a mom or a dad say to me when their child is born, well, you know, little Johnny, he ain't much to look at. (laughs) But he's got it where it counts. No, no parent says that. No parent says, you know, let's just just admit Sally, she ain't going to end up on the front of a Pampers ad. Know what I mean? No. No, she doesn't say that. No offense to Johnny's and Sally's here. No, no, every parent always says, even when it's not objectively true because it's not, my child is the most beautiful, lovely child 
ever. Why? Because that child is made in that parent's image. And so what are people? Well, we are the only things our Father has made in His image. And where do most people live? Where does most beauty live then? Cities. Yes. See, God shows us here the highest beauty isn't a garden, but it's a city filled with people. The third garden then looks like the best of creation put together with the best of the city, with the best of the New Yorks and the Parises and the Cape Towns and the Londons, and yes, the best of the Beiruts and even the Austin, Texases. And if that sounds like heaven, that's because it is. The best beaches, oceans, mountains combined with the best streets, buildings, civilization. It's a better Eden, an Eden restored for those who have trusted Jesus in this life. And best of all, God himself is at the center of it all. Friends, because of Jesus, because of today, because of Easter, all that was lost in the first garden and won back in the second will be ours in the third. That is the story of the Bible. And on that day, on that day, when those who have trusted Christ enter that place, may we say this, I have come home at last This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.